This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. A nonprofit group, Students for Fair Admissions, has sued Harvard University and the University of North Carolina system, alleging that both institutions have violated the constitutional ban on the use of racial quotas for student admissions. A ban on racial quotas was first imposed in 1978 when the US Supreme Court ruled that the University of California Medical School in Davis, California had violated the constitution when it set aside 16% of all admission slots to be available only to African-American and Hispanic American students. But Justice Powell, the justice who cast the tie-breaking vote in a very close decision, said that schools could take race into account as one of many factors considered when admitting a diversity of students to a campus. Powell specifically mentioned Harvard as an institution that had a constitutionally permissible diversity policy. Later, the Supreme Court in a Texas case said that any such diversity program needed to be narrowly tailored to this diversity purpose in order to avoid the ban on racial quotas. So that raises the question, is the Harvard program today narrowly tailored? And how about other universities, such as the University of North Carolina? Do they have constitutionally permissible admission policy that are narrowly tailored? Well, the students for fair admission say, no, that's not the case. They're broadly tailored in ways that well, the policies end up being essentially the same thing as quotas. And they further argued that both universities are discriminating against Asian Americans, another group that has been given constitutional protection against discrimination. So both Harvard and the University of North Carolina have been sued, but both have successfully defended their, those lawsuits at the lower courts. So the lower courts have ruled in both cases that Harvard and the University of North Carolina are acting constitutionally, but now the US Supreme Court has taken on these cases and many people think the Supreme Court in the current term may very well enunciate a new perhaps definitive position on affirmative action in higher education. I am pleased to have with me today on the Education Exchange one of the expert witnesses in both the Harvard and North Carolina cases, Peter Arcidiakono, an economist at Duke University. He is an expert witness in both cases. He's carefully analyzed the admissions policies of both universities, and I'm just delighted he's here uh, to join me on the education exchange. So, Peter, let me first ask you point blank a key question that emerges from your research. If a Black person and a white person apply to Harvard and they look alike in all discernible respects, do they have an equal chance? Well, thanks a lot for having me on the on the show. Uh, and the answer to that question is clearly no. Um, and I think not only is it clearly no, I think the judges in, in the cases that ruled against F SFFA would also say clearly no, uh, that it does give an advantage to uh, the black applicant, and then the, the real debate is sort of how much. So how much is there? I mean, that is, uh, if it's narrowly tailored, then you would expect it would probably be on the margins. You know, if everybody looks about the same, then you would you would give a break to the minority student. Uh, so so is it any more than that? 
Oh, we are far away from race as a tiebreaker. Part of um, why I took the case was just to see how, how large the preferences were and the different ways in which they operate uh, across different environments. So when you say, you know, how big are they at a, at a place like Harvard, um, you know, I find that it quadruples the admissions rate for African-Americans. Um, David Card finds that it triples it. So he was the expert on the other side. So, you know, we're talking about, I don't think the, the narrowly tailored goes for quadruple, but not triple, you know. So in other words, you're sort of finding that if a white student has a 5% chance of getting admitted, and about 5% of all applicants get admitted, it might be 4%, it might be 6%, but about 5% are being admitted each year. Um, if a white student has a 5% chance, then a black applicant is going to have a 20% chance if that black applicant is equivalent uh, to the white applicant. Actually, it's going to be much bigger than that. And so the, the, the way that works is that um, if you actually had a 5% chance of getting in, now you're really near more of the margin. So the black applicant would, um, I'd have to look up the numbers, but it's well above 50% chance of getting in. When I said it quadruples the rate, that was an on average calculation. So there's so many um, applicants who have a very low chance of getting in much lower than the 5%. And so when we talk about on average, it quadruples it. But for somebody who has a 5% chance of getting in a white applicant, that race bump will shift you well above 50%. Well, that's a, that's a massive difference. Now, how about for Hispanic students? Hispanics? Hispanic applicants, I should say. Hispanic applicants, yeah. Yeah, so the, the preferences are generally about half as big. For Hispanic applicants. And I should also say that in both those cases, um, you see very large uh, racial bumps. And then there's also, you can get a bump for being disadvantaged as well in the process. And that's a label that the Harvard admissions officers, you know, they're trying to assess whether your income's below a particular level. If you're Black, you don't get that disadvantaged bump. You get the large racial bump, but you won't get the disadvantage bump. And what that means is, is that the preferences are actually largest for those who are not coming from the poor backgrounds. So, but for white students, you get some kind of a break if you're disadvantaged. How big is that break? Is it uh, similar in size? Oh, no, it's, I, my recollection is it's about a third of the size, uh, maybe a little bit more than a third of the size. How about Asian Americans? And because this is a lawsuit that was brought, especially uh, with Asian Americans in mind, uh, they say they're being uh, discriminated against, even though they are a constitutionally protected uh, uh, a minority group. So are they being, is there a sign that, that they uh, suffer in the uh, admissions process if you take into account their academic background and other qualities? Oh, I, I think that the evidence is very clear that they are being discriminated against relative to white applicants. Um, you now, this discrimination is happening for applicants who are, who are your normal set of 
of applicants. So we're not talking about the recruited athletes. It's happening more for the 97% of applicants who don't, you know, who are not legacies and not, not uh, athletes. And you can see it almost right away because their overall admit rate for the non-athletes and non-legacies is very similar to whites. But their academic performance just far is as far superior. If you did admissions based solely on academics, Harvard would be over 50% Asian American. And they're in the 20s uh, right now. Now, Harvard obviously takes into account other things. And Asian Americans do better, or at least as well um, as whites, on all of those things, except for two. And those two are Harvard's athletic rating, which is sort of a crazy that they even have an athletic rating for non-recruited athletes, and Harvard's personal rating. Uh, on the personal rating side, we believe race is being taken into account there. Every model of the personal rating shows a penalty against Asian Americans. We control for the athletic rating because it's hard to tell whether there would be bias in that as opposed to, for whatever reason, Harvard values you being on the sailing team. So you're saying that the personal rating, according to Harvard, Asians have on average pretty bad personalities compared yeah, to the they other would groups. object to saying it's personalities, but it's so nebulous that it could be it could be lots of things. You know, you hear things about effervescence and likability, those kinds of things. And really all of the testimony by Harvard's admissions officers says that, you know, they don't, they don't think Asian Americans are deficient in these ways, but somehow they're coming out ranked poorly on that measure. And to me, that's actually really a blueprint for discrimination. You know, that fundamentally, if I can just say, well, it's not we're discriminating against you. We have this rating that we've made up. By all accounts, it looks like this group should do fine on it, but they're just not doing well on it. That's why they're, they're not getting hired. Any other group that would just not be acceptable. And if I were to apply for a job and they say, we're not going to hire you, even though you're highly qualified, but we don't like your personality. And if that happens over and over again, and I happen to be from a particular background that this happens to systematically, then you think uh, I would have a pretty good case in court. Certainly. Um, but it might depend on what group you're with, which is that's the unfortunate part is it shouldn't depend on on what group. But I don't have a very good personality. You know that. So <laughs> so that's something I'm very interested in. But but Peter. Um, so what does Harvard say they consider when what are the factors that they tend to consider the, the SAT scores, uh, grade point average? What are. What are all the things that go into deciding whether or not to admit a student? Oh, quite a lot goes into that. And certainly they, they have a whole set of ratings. They have four what are called profile ratings, which are academics, extracurriculars, and then the personal rating and the athletic rating. Then you need to submit two teacher letter 
recommendations. And so the admissions officer is gonna score those as well. You have a college counselor letter that also gets scored. And then it's supposed to be optional, but it's really not. Um, you do an interview with an alumni and uh, they keep track of a few different scores, but the ones that get entered into the database are sort of an overall rating by the alumni as well as a personal rating. How did you get all this information? I thought that admissions was a very closed process to protect the rights of the student applicant and to protect the rights of families. And this shouldn't be public knowledge. How did you get your, your, your data? Well, that, that came about through being an expert in the, in the case. And it's exactly why I took the case because a lot of my work is on affirmative action. And it's always very unsatisfying because you, know, you don't have all the variables that you would like to see. I don't even, I do not like being characterized as an opponent of affirmative action. I view myself as somebody who studies affirmative action. And in that light, the ability to, through the court case, the judge said that we, we could get access to that data. So we ended up with six years of individual level data on every Harvard applicant. And I think we got somewhere in the mid 400s of the actual application files. So I actually read a lot of the files as well. The data set has every applicant, you know, all their scores and the different ratings. The files, uh, that subset, that's where I could read the essays myself, read the teacher recommendations myself. So in other words, it was, how did the plaintiff, because I think Harvard resisted giving up this information for a very long period of time and it went back and forth and the judge had to intervene a lot. Uh, so why did they finally have to cave in and, and release the stuff that they re regarded as strictly private? Well, so a lot of it remains private in the sense that we tried to get the database admitted into evidence and the judge said no to that. So everything that I'm talking about is sort of what's come out in the public record. I think they would have liked to have kept even, you know, view it as sort of the secret recipe of the admissions process. Uh, I think they would have, liked to, would have liked to have kept a lot of that out. I think what the judge's mindset on that was, you know, this is, um, can't really show the discrimination without the data. You know, we have all this circumstantial evidence in order to really evaluate the claim of Asian American discrimination, we have to see the data. Well, so all of your estimates are just that, they're estimates. And do you think you're overestimating the preference that is given to minority students or do you think it's an underestimate? I actually think it's an underestimate, um, though I, to the extent that it is an underestimate, I don't think it's an underestimate by much, mainly because uh, the model does such a good job explaining Harvard's admissions process, there's not a lot left over. Now, the reason I think it's an underestimate is that generally what happens is that as you add more controls to the model, you can sort of see where things are heading. And in this case, when, as you add more controls, the preferences are going up for um, African-Americans and Hispanics and the penalty against Asian-Americans is growing. 
So that suggests that if we added even more controls, it would continue to go in that direction. But there's not that much room for it to go much further, mainly because the model already does an incredible job of, of fitting the data. So you think that you've got a pretty, pretty precise estimate here with a, a possibility of some underestimate, but not, not one that, that's wildly off. Uh, so um, how about North Carolina? Is the picture essentially the same or are there some differences? There are some differences. It, it's quite clear to me that the, the two Michigan cases really worked to the advantage of private elite schools. So what those two Michigan cases did, the one on the undergraduate side said, you cannot use race as part of an explicit point system. At Michigan, they were giving so many points for being of a particular underrepresented group. But in the law school- In an earlier case, right? In Michigan- it, That's right. This was- They, after they sort of said, forfeit, if you use points, then that's a quota system. If you don't use points, then it's, it's not. Right. So they wanted you to use race holistically. Now, ironically, in my view, um, the, the preferences in law school tend to be even bigger than an undergraduate. And that's where they, they were doing the holistic admissions was the, the Michigan Law School. At UNC, what's different is they don't have near as many ratings as Harvard. You know, they only are requiring one letter of recommendation. And so I can explain their admissions decisions uh, better with a lot less variables. So that's one, one big difference between Harvard and UNC. The other big difference is that UNC effectively has two admission systems. In both these systems, applicants are evaluated according to the same criteria, but the standard for admissions is very different. And the two hinge on whether you're applying as a resident of North Carolina or applying out of state. North Carolina has restrictions on the number of enrollees that they're supposed to have who are out of state. And as a result, admissions is much more competitive there. So in the time period we were looking at, the enrollment rate for in-state applicants was around 50%, but out-of-state applicants, it was under 17%. That creates very different incentives for how racial preferences can operate. One of the things you're worried about with racial preferences is that if they get if they go too far, then the student may not be able to do well in the classroom. Now, what we find is that racial preferences are much bigger for out-of-state applicants. They can be much bigger for out-of-state applicants in part for that reason, that I can give really large bumps to out-of-state African-American applicants, and they'll still be stronger academically than the in-state African-American applicants who receive smaller bumps just because the out-of-state admissions process is so much more competitive. Let me interpret what you're saying. They use the out-of-state applicants to boost their percentage of minority students on the campus. That's right. Oh, uh, placing the individual student at such a disadvantage that they're gonna feel completely out of touch with what the, uh, university is expecting. 
Well, that, that's why they can do it for out-of-state more than in-state, because if they applied the same preferences for the in-state applicants, they'd be, they just wouldn't be able to do the work. Um, and well, even now, the preferences may go so far as, you know, where the last one admitted is probably not, um, maybe may in a tough spot academically. So now, is this just Harvard and, and UNC, did they, is this committee on fair admissions cherry picking sort of the worst cases out there? Or is this, is this, I, and I know you can't answer this definitively, but based on your experiences and your knowledge of this whole world of admissions, is this, is this happening in, in institutions across the country? Is every single college doing the same thing? So I think that, um, that's one of the sort of the things about affirmative action is it's actually not relevant for a lot of institutions because a lot of institutions simply aren't selective. So, you know, if you think about the California, the Cal State system has, you know, way more enrollees than the University of California system. And the University of California system is the one where affirmative action is going to be very relevant because a lot of the Cal State schools just aren't that selective. So they do, you don't have the same scope for the way, you can't quadruple admissions rates at a school where the admission rates are already above 50%. Uh, so you can't get the same magnitude. And part of it's just that it's especially relevant at these top schools because of the academic preparation gaps prior to college. So there's just very few African-American applicants who are scoring uh, super high on standardized tests. And that's a, really a failure of our system prior, prior to college uh, that needs to be addressed. You know, sometimes you hear the argument that that just shows that the tests are racially biased. And I strongly object to that characterization in part because then I feel like you're selling what uh, happens prior to college short. You know, the reality is, is that these gaps are really big prior to college and that that's really where we need to focus on. If you say that all the gap in test scores is due to racial bias on the test and there's nothing to change in what happens prior to college. Well, I think this is one of the things that people don't realize is that universities set the standard for high schools and high schools set the standard for uh, middle schools and middle schools set the standards for elementary schools. And you start uh, ignoring standards at the at the university level, it's going to trickle down through the whole system. And maybe this is one of the concerns that a lot of people have about our educational system today. Totally agree. And it's a real shame because I feel like they should at least, even if you didn't use the test in admissions, you should at least collect the data so that you can best serve your students by using that information to help them find the right classes and give them the resources they need to succeed. Well, a good friend of, of mine who is not at all biased in these matters, nonetheless, that tells me I am I don't know, but I sort of like what Harvard does because I'd hate to see the university with 50% Asian student population. It's just doesn't sound right to me. That's not the that's not 
our country is, it wouldn't be good for the country if all the elite colleges were, uh, were dominated by a particular ethnic group that's only five to 7% of the population at most. So how do you respond to that, that concern? Well, it's interesting because we, we come up with a particular category and say they're way overrepresented, but you could do that with a lot of other categories. You know, if you think about uh, what fraction of Harvard students are coming from rich families, it's going to be extremely high. Now, I guess what's different about race is you can see it, but even on income, you can see it. <laughs> you know, it's pretty clear. Um, who's got the money there. It's just that it's very easy to categorize people on the basis of race. You know, if you look at what how they handled, you know, they used to discriminate against Jewish applicants um, in a similar way to what they're doing with Asian applicants. The only difference is, is they felt more comfortable talking about the, the language was different in how. But now what they do with Jewish applicants is they don't choose to download the information on religion. They could, it's available to them on the common app, but they don't use that information so that they, so they don't discriminate against them, at least directly. You know, there may still be ways to do it indirectly. So I was gonna ask that question. Do we have any evidence, you know, at, at Harvard at one time, it was, it was pretty well known that there was a quota for Jews. I mean, they didn't want more than, than so many because if you got too many on the campus, it'd be known as a Jewish school and Harvard didn't want to be known as that. So, so is this practice continuing, Sub Rosa? Well, I think that as soon as you take it off the forms, it makes it harder for it to, to occur. You know, Harvard is keeping track of the characteristics of their admitted class, you know, daily in their admissions. Uh, over their admission season. They have these things called one-pagers. It's keeping track of how many people they've admitted and, and accepted of different races and how many have enrolled. And they actually do that three different ways with regard to race. So they're, they're keenly aware of trying to sort of get that class to look a bit like last year's class. Once you sort of take that away, there may be some residual discrimination that occurs but it's not gonna be at the same level. And I think you can get a hint of that from when California removed racial preferences with Proposition 209. There, um, you could see that it did lead to a dip in minority enrollment, particularly at the beginning and at the places like Berkeley and UCLA, but there was a bit of, re of recovery and I think it's an open question as to how much of that recovery that occurred was the UC system doing a better job of fostering the pipeline of minority applicants and how much of that recovery was due to figuring out other ways to game the system uh, to effectively have preferences uh, even when they weren't supposed to be. So, you know, the Baki case, was it was a very close decision. There were four justices who said, Quotas are just fine. We need quotas to rectify the discrimination of the past that's occurred society-wide, maybe not at Davis, but society-wide there was discrimination against African-Americans, against Hispanic-Americans. We need those quotas. 
But then they, that was only four. And the fifth vote was supplied by Powell, who said, well, I don't like quotas, but we could have this diversity requirement. But what if we had instead just said quotas are fine? The thing about the diversity requirement that has always annoyed me is that it's led to this hypocrisy. There's this idea, we're, we're not doing it, but we're doing it, or we're not doing it. So there's all this ambiguity, and I think total hypocrisy, where is with a quota system, it would be out there, it would be fully apparent, and you could say, okay, this is how much is of a preference that we have. Wouldn't, in retrospect, going back, wouldn't that have been the better move at the time? And wouldn't we have a healthier system today? I think we would provided there was transparency. So I, I think that that's one of the big issues with all of this is people don't know how big a role it's playing. And I think that that's, um, that, that's an issue even for the beneficiaries. You, you wanna know how big of a bump you're getting when you're going there because that's gonna frame whether this, you think the school is a good match for you. If you want to come in and do engineering and you're one and a half standard deviations below the mean at your school in math, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but you might not have that information. So how do you think this is going to get decided? You know, it, it, it's easy for the Supreme Court to say the lower courts are right. Um, but they did take the case that they could have easily dodged the whole question just by not taking the case. So you sort of feel like something's going to happen. But the something that might happen could either be a very broad decision that's saying, let's get rid of affirmative action, pure and simple. It's been around long enough. Uh, actually, Sandra Day O'Connor said it should be around for another 25 years. She said that in 2002. It's that we're almost there to the 25 year mark uh, already. So they might be very sweeping about this, but then they might just focus in on the Asian issue and say, we can't, we, we can't discriminate against a minority. How, how do you think they're going to uh, uh, square the circle? here? Well, I'm not sure. I think I'd be very speculative there. I do think that the Asian discrimination part just cannot stand uh, just because to me, that just provides that blueprint for other companies to discriminate by coming up with rating systems um, that, that are not justified, uh, that are leading to these penalties with no evidence that they um, can be explained by any other factor than race. And when they don't even show that those things matter for um, any of Harvard's objective objectives. So you should have at least had to link those to some something that happens while at college. So I'm, you know, that one it seems like it has to be dealt with. Predicting what the Supreme Court's going to do on affirmative action has always been tough. You know, uh, I think everyone's been the votes have tend to be be close and generally not what what people expect. So we'll see what happens this time. This is all uh, uh, tremendously interesting and informative. So, so, but does it really going to make any difference what the Supreme Court decides? The, the universities are now saying, you know, we don't believe in test scores anymore. 
And uh, we're gonna, we're just going to rely on other factors to make our decisions for admissions. And so all the data that you now have that leads to you being able to make these points is just simply gonna disappear. Even if, even if a plaintiff wants it, they won't be able to get it because the university will say, well, we don't have that information about a student. So are the universities gonna change the rules for admitting students in order to basically get around any decision the Supreme Court hands down? I think that they will change the rules. I think you could see that, you know, in the recent example with Prop 16. So Prop 16 tried to- That's in California. Yeah, tried to reintroduce racial preferences back into California to overturn that previous proposition I mentioned, Proposition 209. And it failed, it failed by quite a large margin actually. Now the UC system is saying we're no longer going to take standardized tests. And uh, you know whether there was a direct connection there, it, it seems like those things are quite related. Um, so they can do things like that to get around, to try to get around um, those rules. I think those things are only partially successful. And obviously I think that that works to the detriment of the university. I think there are other things they can do to try to uh, affect the pipeline, to provide resources, to prepare people for, for college and do a better job with that. I'm hoping that to the extent there might be some universities to try to get around this, but that other universities may do a better job of investing with the data that they have to try to identify what students are going to succeed there. And, and by providing that information, they might put themselves in a good position. So um, there is so much work that could be done on higher education with the data that's available, the, the, the data that universities have to identify people early who are going to struggle and then give them the resources that they need to succeed. Uh, you know, they, if they get rid of the, the tests and such, what you may end up seeing is more racial segregation just happening within schools. So you don't see very many uh, African-American students in the sciences. Well, that too would be a problem. And so they're gonna have to figure out whether they're, um, what to do about that. One way would be to just, we're gonna make those science classes easier. At that point, your school's not the same as what it once was. Um, that could be a, a, a valid system. It's just the Berkeley education won't mean the same thing. Well, to have an equal opportunity society, I think you're saying we got to start at the bottom and have good education available to all people uh, from the day they enter school all the way up through that school system until the day they apply to college. You can't sort of correct for the deficiencies of our educational system by manipulating things at the top. Is that, is that sort of what I hear you saying? That's right. And I think by manipulating things at the top, um, it gives us a way out of dealing with the issues earlier down. You know, if we, you know, according to my model, if it was just based on academics, less than 1% of, of Harvard enrollees would be African-American. Well, that's, that would be uh, a travesty. So working to fix those things beforehand, that, that needs to be the, the thing that we face with regard to race. And I think that in order to do that, we're gonna have to 
uh, help out with charter schools and school choice. Um, it's very clear that uh, the group that you always find the, the, the best effects of smaller class sizes, Catholic schools, vouchers, it's always uh, inner city African-Americans. And I think that's a large part because their parents don't have the uh, margin to help out. If my kids have a bad teacher, they're gonna be okay because I'm gonna make sure that they get the resources that they need. But if your parents are not in a position to do that, that's where the, the schooling really matters. And I think with COVID, we're gonna see those achievement gaps go up quite a bit. Uh, you know, my kids were in school. A lot of the public school kids were not. Uh, and that's gonna have, have big implications uh, for racial achievement gaps. Well, thank you, Peter, for this enlightening discussion of the uh, Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action cases. Uh, I've been speaking with Peter Arcidiakono, an economics professor at Duke University in North Carolina. He's served as an expert witness in the high profile cases brought by the Students for Fair Admission against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. So thank you for joining me, Peter. Thanks for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.